Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 25, This One Goes Up to 11, where we will be looking at chapters 53 through 55 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of performances. All right, everyone, here we go again. We are explaining what you are about to listen to in broad terms. On this podcast every week, we will be examining a section of the book, The Name of the Wind, through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We'll also take some time at the end to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian phronemos of the week. Now, as this is episode 25, how about we do a small re-explanation of what the phronemos is? The phronemos is Aristotle's model of practical wisdom. This is a practically wise person more than anything else, and he believes that it is by observing such people that you can actually learn what virtue is. That it is not something intrinsic or internal to yourself, but something that you discover through the observation of others and the application of what you learn. Thank you. After we discuss our phrenemos, we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact, and then wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and the Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or you're a weirdo who likes to know the future, like someone who decided to make some monkey's paw trade-off where you got to know how you would die in exchange for a terrible curse. And hey, if that's what you want, you do you. Needless to say, beyond this point, here be spoilers. Other possibilities are, you are one of our family members that wants to support us and has not yet read the book, but that doesn't really matter that much to you, now does it? We'll take a pity listen. <laughs> Finally, a word to our community. While it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we will not stand for any abuse of the author responsible for it. So with that all out of the way, we will be inserting audio of my punishment into this file. There will also be a video of it up on YouTube. You earned yourself some raspberries. Yeah, two weeks ago. Maybe everyone's forgotten by now. You'll live. Are you sure? I've eaten cherries two times more. But I don't know about this. Are you saying that I have more fortitude than you? Yes. You sure about that? No. Because <laughs> I'm pretty sure that uh, you're tougher than I am. And if I can eat cherries three times, you can eat raspberries twice. I mean, the first time I drank them. I'm still waiting for that raspberry beer. <laughs> Like I say, you're tougher than I am, so don't sell yourself short. Well, it is my turn again for the 45-second recap. And of course, this is a longer section with a lot of things that happen. So you know what I'm going to do? Skip all of it. <laughs> hey, that's on you. That's your choice. It is a choice. All right. You ready? Okay. Okay. 
All right, in three, two, one, go. We get a deeper explanation of the Aeolian as well as our first description of talent pipes. Afterwards, we properly meet Ari and learn that Kvothe gave her that name. She watches Kvothe practice for his first big solo performance ever, attempting to earn his talent pipes. Upon entering the Aeolian, he first makes an ash out of himself and then sets himself up for either a huge success or a crushing defeat by choosing to play an overly ambitious song that requires audience participation. Kvothe is telling this story, so I'll let you guess which one of the outcomes occurred. This happens even though one of his loot strings breaks for no reason. 36.37 seconds. You made it! Woo! No raspberries for you this week. Yay! Oh, come on. I thought you'd be more excited about that. I still have to eat a Pop-Tart, so... Oh, poor you. <laughs> yes, poor me. I hate raspberries. I mean, at least it's not cherries. Cherries are wonderful. Says you. Says me. <sighs> Audio of my punishment will be added here. Oh, how sweet. You've made me breakfast. That's right. I have made you hand-toasted, artisanally crushed raspberry Pop-Tarts over a craft-shattered raspberry Pop-Tart reduction. It's very chefy. Aren't you excited? No. Well, I'm excited, so therefore you must be excited. Come on, let's try it out. I hope you love this breakfast that I made for you. I made it with love and punishment. And malicious intent? No, I want you to enjoy the things I enjoy. I don't. This smells gross. It smells like raspberries. I don't know what you're talking about. Do I have to eat all of this? Mm, give it at least two good bites. That's not a bite. Use your fork and knife. Come on. You made me eat a whole cherry ripe, so turnabout is fair play. That's not a bite. You can do better than that. Oh, hi, Sokka. Sokka, here. You may have the grossness. You still haven't had a bite of it yet. You're just so afraid. I'm not afraid. It's just gross. Come on. If I had to eat a whole cherry ripe and then drink that whole smoothie thing, come on. You can do this. I believe in you. Is that a bite? Sure. Be brave. Yeah. Ugh. Being warm doesn't help. Hi, kitties. Are you here for moral support? Yep. They love you. Now that's what's happening. They love me. So, uh, so that's one. You, you had one bite. I said two. Two good bites. You two are not providing enough of a distraction. I can still taste it. It's gross. Can I have a real breakfast after this? I mean, we got grits. I know. No one's stopping you. No. But I made you this with love and raspberries. Malicious intent. Nah, you're just reading that yourself. You seem to have enjoyed the cherries given to me. That's not a bite. Come on. You can do it. Is that a bite? Yeah was really gross the first time. Come on. These are not good. This is punishment. I don't know. 
so sorry, it's not. I mean, ugh. I'd say, like, you're going to eat these so that, like, they don't go to waste or something, but this is a punishment for everyone. I'll be the judge of that. Here, let me try a bite. Hmm. The raspberry comes through nicely. It's quite good. I'll finish the rest of it if you don't want it. I definitely do not want this. Okay, you're lost. So with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. And we're back. That was gross. All right, moving on. Moving on. So for our lens this week, we chose performances. And in this section, there are a lot of performances going on in addition to just the ones on stage. Our first performance that we see is with Foth and Simon. Simon is one of the few people who seems to actually like Foth, no questions asked. For some reason. While it speaks highly to Simon's character, Foth is always putting on a bit of a mask around Simon. Simon is curious about Quoth's practice time with his lute. Apparently, people around the university have heard him play because, of course, he's playing into what is probably an echo chamber, which is probably going to amplify anything that he plays. And let's be real, it's probably both a literal and figurative echo chamber because that seems to be what Quoth surrounds himself with. That seems to be what a lot of people surround themselves with. We don't like to hear dissenting voices. This is true. Anyway. Sim is kind of making fun of Quoth for his practicing, which I think is kind of a disservice, actually. I, I think that you don't learn an instrument by letting it sit and only performing in front of people. You have to practice. You have to get all of the things that you do incorrectly out I wouldn't be able to pick up my guitar and all of a sudden sound like Jimi Hendrix that's just not a thing yeah practice is the space where you allow yourself to make mistakes and learn from them and everybody has to do that there is a saying practice makes perfect and I have heard it said that perfect practice makes perfect that doesn't mean that you don't make mistakes while you're practicing that doesn't mean that you pick up your guitar and are all of a sudden able to play what's the hardest thing on on rock band? like what's the fire, fire and flames, flames. yeah <laughs> without practicing without learning it but if you only repeat the same thing over and over again including all of the mistakes you always make you're not really going to improve so you have to practice in a way that helps you improve from not knowing anything to knowing what you're doing and then drill in the knowing what you're doing until it comes a second nature to you. And to do exercises that push you to grow beyond your previous boundaries. One thing I notice here is that as important as Kvothe's music is to him, he has yet to show his friends and then he has this little subtle thing where he says, I valued their opinion almost as much as I valued that of the people at the Aeolian. 
which I feel like is doing Will and Sim a bit of a disservice, since this is just a bar that he only knows about through reputation and has never actually been to. And these are two people who actually care about him and genuinely are concerned about his well-being. And they would probably also be able to tell him whether or not what he thinks he's doing properly and correctly and perfectly and wonderfully, if it actually is. We've never seen Will and Sim to hold back when it comes to sharing their opinions of people and things, and they tend to give pretty unvarnished responses, so I don't think they would try and just spare his feelings. Especially knowing how important it is to perform well if you're attempting to earn your talent pipes. I think Sim is awkwardly trying to convince Quoth to share his music without outright asking, well, why don't you let us hear what you're playing? Why don't you get someone else's opinion? Why don't you ask for help? And it's a good practice to get somebody else to look over what you've done. It's why you have editors. It's why whenever I would write a paper for my freshman game design classes, I'd ask you to edit them. Because while you're writing it, you aren't checking for mistakes. And when you do go back to check for mistakes, you might be making the exact same mistakes because you either don't know the grammar properly or you think you wrote something and when you read it, you think you see it. Or it makes sense in your head and it doesn't make sense to other people. Same thing goes for musical practice. If you're a musician, or if you're just playing around like we are, record yourself, see what you're doing wrong, concentrate on fixing it. Simple as that. And I also think that Simon is wanting to understand more about his friend, this person who he values, and he wants to have a sense of the whole person. A deeper understanding of his friend Quoth. Exactly. Which is funny because Quoth does not care about having a deeper understanding about anyone. As soon as he discovers anything even remotely unflattering, he starts to get a little bit turned off. So he'd rather just not know anything. This is not a good personality trait. One thing, though, is that Quoth is painting Sim as someone who would rather performatively support his friend than really support their friend. And I say that because Sim starts talking about another person's performance at the Aeolian, and Quoth instantly knows the song that Sim is describing, but Sim just goes, whatever. I mean, honestly, the ridiculously vague theming of it really could apply to just about any song, though. That's not the point. The point is that Sim seems more interested in outwardly supporting Quoth than knowing enough about the subject that Quoth is so passionate about that he can geek out with him. However, Quoth is asking, will you and Will show up to my performance? And Sim is gung-ho, unless there is an earthquake or a rain of blood, we'll be there. So I guess I liken it a little bit to someone going to their kid's musical recital. But if Slayer are in town, sorry, gotta go. Raining blood. Gotcha. <laughs> <laughs> I would ditch a friend's performance to go see Slayer, so... You're a bad friend. Most of my friends would understand. 
Quoth also makes mention of potentially gambling away his money and being nervous about the fact that he could fail at this. But it's Quoth telling the story, so of course he's not going to. But he keeps mentioning things like, I could fail. This could be a thing that happens. That's also performative. It's an attempt to appear humble. I noticed it when they cross the bridge, they do this thing where spit for luck. And he's sitting here thinking of Arwell saying there's no such thing as luck. We make our own going all objectivist about it. And then he just decides, well, okay, I'm going to pretend that I care about luck. Despite the fact that his entire plan really depends on a lot of luck. And he has previously said, lastly, I was lucky. And we'll get to that section of his plan later here. So the next thing is, it is amazing how much Quoth thinks that people are staring at him and watching him and talking about him and giving a huge amount of their attention and interest to his mundane everyday goings on. He takes a piece of bread from the mess. Now we know he's going to be taking it to Ari, but Sim has told him about rumors about how people know where he's going at night. He's still going to the same place. He just goes a different direction. He thinks that other people view him as the protagonist of their story. Yeah, it's the sort of thing that people might notice because it's maybe a little odd, but they aren't going to care. And Kvothe, of course, kind of feeds on this in the worst sort of dramatic way he seems to need this level of drama in his life just to keep going it convinces him that he's worthwhile because he does seem to derive a sense of value based on his own notoriety hence why he makes up rumors about himself i also note that his opinion of the food that's available at the mess has gone down even though i'm sure that the quality of the food that is at the mess is not going down Mm, I wouldn't be so sure of that. I remember when I was in college, you could always tell when the food was good. And that would be any time that parents or visitors might be in town. It went up a notch. The deeper you got into a semester, though, and the further you were away from parents' weekends or campus visits, it went down a few notches. And part of that could also just be familiarity breeding contempt. That's kind of what I'm thinking, too, but... His performances are starting to crack around things that would have been amazing to him to be living with and were amazing for him three or four months ago. And now they're so commonplace, you know, having decent but not great food, while his friends can have great food. Comparing yourself or what you have to what another person has, sometimes that in itself can make you want to be performatively happy with what you have, while underneath that surface, you're jealous. Now I think we can get to Ari. So by the time he gets to Ari, we come to learn that he's already had a few direct interactions with her off screen, so to speak, and has decided to give her the name Ari because she won't tell him her own name. Ari is skittish. Ari disappeared for multiple days when Kvothe inquired too much about her. What's your name? So instead of calling her girl, which 
he could have, which would have lowered my opinion significantly. He gives her the name Ari. Quoth is a namer. And she does seem to really value that name and thinks of herself with that name too. Especially when you get to the slow regard of silent things. Although I did feel a little weird how he calls her my little moon fay. Mostly the my part just seems uncomfortably possessive. She doesn't belong to other people. She is herself. Yeah, and I don't think she deserves, like anybody, to be defined by her relationship with someone else. It's almost like Quoth thinks that she's his secret. I kind of get that feeling, and it does her a disservice. Quoth assumes that Ari is no more than 20. He also talks about how she's very petite. And a lot of this goes into that My Little Moon Fay wording. I think because she's small and skittish, it makes Quoth think that he has to be protective. I don't think he needs to be protective. I also, though, don't think that he's being malicious. And I also wouldn't characterize that as being anything other than well-meaning. Sometimes protecting another person is admirable and sometimes protecting them so much that you shelter them away from everyone else is a bit destructive. And not to continue saying that's a disservice to Ari, but it is, in fact, to take someone who was so very independent and capable, even as Ari is not a model of what would be typical in society or typically independent or typically capable. She can take care of herself. She has been taking care of herself without Quoth's help for we don't know how long, but clearly she is capable and she does not need Quoth white knighting for her. She knows how to protect herself and she has protected herself for some time now. But I do think that Quoth sees a bit of himself in her. That bit of himself from when he was lost in the woods. I think he sees that door of forgetting, that door of madness. It's something that he empathizes with. And that's something he doesn't do very often with any other character. So he's gentle with her. And instead of trying to control her, he seems to just accept her. Which... I think that's something he should be doing with everybody. Controlling behavior is one of the biggest turnoffs to me. Anyway, Ari can clearly tell what time it is. She tells him he's late. She's not afraid to be reproachful. She doesn't seem to care whether or not she's going to scare him off. She's exuberant and trusting of Quoth. And I think it's because Quoth has done nothing but try to give her assistance and he's also not forced her to do anything she's uncomfortable doing he hasn't forced her to talk to him he's clearly disappointed when she runs away he's trying to build her trust and not for nefarious reasons i think he genuinely wants to get to know her and like you mentioned when she runs away he doesn't chase her he instead lets her come and go as she pleases, and he makes himself safe for her to come to him, which I think is important. I like the imagery around her. 
Her long hair was so fine that it trailed around her, floating in the air like a cloud. It's a nice and pretty and poetic way of saying her hair's frizzy. People have also commented on her apparent fear of the moon, and I think it's obvious why. She's a werewolf. (laughs) (laughs) Hear me out. I think the reason that she, quote, cracked, she didn't. She was infected with lycanthropy, and when the full moon rose, she went on a rampage and tore through the student body. When she discovered what she had done, she retreated to the underthing where she would no longer be subject to the moon's tyranny. Now, if she were to come out at night with the moon out, there's a good chance that it could happen again and we'd have another werewolf rampage. This is all just science. (laughs) Okay. Let's go on to less, um... Bat shirt crazy theories. It's at least three span, 33 days, between the time that Quoth is aware of her presence and when she actually comes up and talks with him. So it's been more than a month. She is exuberant and she loves to listen to him play. They also start in on this back and forth gift giving, which seems like it may or may not include imaginary things but i think even if they are imaginary made up exaggerated they're still real in a way there's an element of a love language there in that ari and kvoth are both people who do not have what one would classify as means neither of them have money to speak of or too much in the way of worldly possessions, yet they are exchanging gifts with one another as a way of showing affection. Like, Quoth is able to give her bread from the cafeteria, which, while, yeah, maybe not something that most of the students would write home about, is still certainly something that she would really appreciate. Even though she says, but I like white bread, and I think that those go into playing up the mystery of her origins. But go ahead. And at the same time, she gives him a key to the moon, which, I mean, seems fanciful on its surface, but this is also a fantasy series, so it may actually. We don't know. I don't know that it's an actual literal moon. It could be. There's a lot of metaphor, especially regarding the moon. There's a lot of links between the moon and Denna, the moon and Jax or Ajax. The moon and Ari. Even with all of that, they treat both gifts with equal solemnity. Both is just as grateful for this key as she is for the bread and the water. Both of these are treated as acts of kindness and love from two people who don't have a whole lot of that in the world. And there's something very pure about it. I think that this is a place in which both drops the hyper-capable performance and just lets his guard down a bit. When Ari asks what's in the water and he says flowers, there's not literal flowers in it. And then he says, and the part of the moon that isn't in the sky tonight. Now, in our world, the part of the moon that isn't in the sky is just not lit up. We don't actually know that about Temerant. We can assume so. 
physics and all that. But there's also the Fey world. So part of the moon might be with the Fey. And of course, Ari says, no, no, I already gave you something from the moon, so you can't use that. This is a game that does seem to have rules. And so he goes, well, then I'm going to go with the shine off the back of a dragonfly. I wanted a piece of the moon, but blue dragonfly shine was as close as I could get. Blue is closely associated with Denna in this story. Denna's ring. Denna's also associated with the moon. Ari goes on to delicately eat her food. There are theories that she is Princess Ariel. There are theories that she is at least nobility. Stands to reason if she came from the university. We can assume that she did because she knows who Master Mandrag is. Slow regard of silent things again. There are also theories out there that she might be an angel, like one of Telu's angels, or Selatos's angels, or Aleph's angels. I'm not sure. I don't really buy it. There's a thought that because her hair is like a halo around her, that that is angel imagery. I can see it as angel imagery, and I can see it as a parallel that both might draw when discussing her, but I don't know that it's literally true. Like so many other things, I'm just not sure that it's literally true. I think it's true from a certain point of view, to quote Obi-Wan. <laughs> I love that Ari believes that the Underthing, which could be scary to a lot of people, confusing and a twisty maze of pipes and danger. She thinks it's cozy. And then she talks about having seen Elodin up top. And when asked whether or not Elodin saw her, she says, nobody sees me. That may or may not be true. I think she believes it though. Again, with the literal versus figurative, does nobody see her because she's not there? Does nobody see her because she can literally make herself invisible? There are, again, with the kind of bat shirt theories, thoughts that Ari might be in the Waystone Inn and she might be one of the silences. I mean, maybe, from a certain point of view. And now I'm about to spray coffee out my nose. Thank you. You're welcome. At the end of this chapter, Kvoth literally performs for Ari. Apparently, Ari is a very exuberant audience. I think that's also important for Quoth, though. He needs to get used to performing in front of people again. Cut to the next scene, next chapter. One that I'm sure that a lot of our listeners are looking forward to us discussing. This whole first couple of pages talks about how Quoth is putting on a show that belies what he's feeling. It's... A show where the audience is literally anyone who might see him between when he gets out of bed and when he leaves the Aeolian that night. And as Willem observes, Quoth's posture is straighter, his gait is more full, he's using his entire foot. The way he holds himself has more energy and tension to it. And part of that could just be nervousness or excitement. Part of it could also just be the desire to exude confidence. Body language does play a role in that. If you can appear confident, you can feel more confident. By purposefully standing straighter, by purposefully keeping your knees from locking, shake everything out and pretend that all of the tension is leaving, 
it actually will to a certain extent. And then, of course, as soon as you think about that, it'll just all come back. As happens when Quoth decides to try and see how he's walking. <laughs> and then he turns into a bumbling idiot. Yes. So we go along. Quoth spits off the bridge. Mostly, I think, to make his friends happy. And doing things to make other people happy is another way to be performative. I don't know that in this case it's 100% a good or bad thing. It's just something that's not inherently authentic in this instance. He's got a lot of confidence right now. He's been practicing. He's feeling good. He's had a good training montage, so to speak. And he believes in his capabilities. And at the same time, there's the old saying, better lucky than good, to which I would counter, better both lucky and good. Yes. <laughs> we get a physical description of where the Aeolian lies within the town. A callback to the city's central cobblestone courtyard, considering that earlier we heard from the patron at the Waystone Inn that the cobblestones are now shattered and no one can repair them. So whatever that was happened in front of the Aeolian. There's a marble fountain. There's a statue of a satyr chasing a group of half-clothed nymphs. In this section, there is a lot of very sexist language. I'm just going to say it. The thought that their attempt at flight seems like a token at best. Ew. We get another one of those heavy-handed, this person's a doorman. There's a couple of those where it's not subtle. We're just supposed to believe something for about two pages until it is revealed that Quoth is an idiot. Yeah, Quoth here is trying to play the practice smooth talker who's able to charm the bouncer. He's talking to Diok, and I think here's the thing. Diok is Dalton from Roadhouse. He's always nice until it's time to not be nice. I think, though, he's also not unreasonable. Quoth clearly has no idea what he's doing. And I think that Diok knows that and kind of takes pity on him. And Sim is mortified by the fact that Quoth treated the owner of this fabled bar like a bouncer. I do love the bit where Diok asks him, so you brought him in? So you brought him? And then he goes, honestly, I don't think we can take him anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so we get a more confident performance from Quoth than maybe he feels internally. He's able to go through all of the motions without too much difficulty coming up to Stanchion, who is the other owner of the Aeolian. Side note, there's a little bit of a assumption that Diok and Stanchion are a couple. I wish it were a bit more blatant and a bit more explored. I want more LGBTQIA content in my stories. I just do. Nothing wrong with wanting it. It's a good thing to want. More diversity in my stories is always a good thing. Anyway, Quoth talks confidently about how he went up to Stanchion and said, I am going to play this insanely complicated thing to earn my talent tonight. And Stanchion's like, your funeral. I noticed the way Stanchion handled that was very delicate. He never said, oh, you shouldn't do that. He simply asked the logical questions to say, hey... I want to make sure you know what you're getting into. Do you have someone who's going to be performing the ladies part of this song? 
Then, of course, Quoth gets to his next gamble, because he assumes that there will be at least three women who will have earned their pipes present, who can sing that part. Well, he assumes that they know how to sing that part. Second, he assumes that they can sing this particular thing well, which I don't know is strictly a guarantee. And third, and perhaps most important, he assumes that they will want to do so for him. I'd say also that he assumes that people will notice that he is asking without asking. That's a fourth assumption. <laughs> and fifth, he's banking that all three of them won't all choose to sing it differently. And at once. Exactly. <laughs> and you know what they say about assuming. Yep. So there's a whole lot of things that have to go completely right in order for this to not fall apart. And he seems aware of this, but not really taking it into account. I'd say that he is aware of it, but performatively defying those odds. Yeah, there's a little bit of that Han Solo, never tell me the odds energy that he's trying to project. I think what he's actually going through is, well, I'm forked either way. There's also a bit of arrogance there. He seems to think that if a lady has earned their talent pipes, that automatically means that they know this difficult song. But he himself has stated multiple times in this section that people are playing songs he doesn't know. I get that the song is well known, but that doesn't mean that another person automatically knows how to sing that part. So I thought Stanchion gave him some pretty good advice without actually just telling him what to do, because as we all know, Quoth does not listen when people tell him what to do. Well, Quoth also doesn't listen when suggestions are made that he knows are smart. Case in point, he doesn't back off from the overly ambitious plan. But he at least has second thoughts about it, which he wouldn't have if Stanchion had just flat out told him, pick something different. That is true. Quoth tends to reactively make the wrong decisions. Even if they seem like they're right, by every measure, they were dumb until they succeeded. Yeah, and at this point, he's, he's banking quite a bit on luck here. Had he chosen something more simple that didn't have this weird randomized element to it, he could actually just demonstrate his skill doing what he does best, which is play the lute. By his own estimation, anyway. By his own estimation, yes. <laughs> I do like the subtle statement here that's being made about how it is better that Quoth have soft cider, no alcohol, before performing. There are so many instances where we trick ourselves into believing that we'll do better if we're drunk, or we'll do better if we're high, or we'll be more creative under the influence. At the same time, there's also kind of that same fallacy that we'll do better if we are dealing with a mental illness without medication. I think all of those are false. And so when he asks for soft cider, again, so much just misogyny when Willem says, girl. Which seems like performative masculinity on Willem's part. Now granted, he is Sheldish. And they all seem to have a little bit of that chauvinistic bent. I think it's casual chauvinism instead of malicious chauvinism. 
intent matters a little. It's not the be-all, end-all. And intent and reception are different things. So an interesting counterpoint to Willem's performative masculinity is Simmons' willingness to just order whatever he likes without even worrying about how it's perceived. Sim is usually portrayed as being a bit more sensitive, though it is not treated with any derision, usually, until Willem just thinks that calling someone a girl is an insult. It bothers me that that's considered insulting. It reminds me of the sort of frat bro-ish taunting that you would see at a college party. It reminds me of people, generally men, but people, who haven't had to come up against people treating them that way. Anyway, enough of that soapbox. To continue on past where Kvothe has been talking and bantering with Stanchion, he continues to banter with Will and Sim. And I think that that is a way to both actually ease his nerves and maybe to show that he is easing his nerves, which might, in fact, ease his nerves. Yeah, it's the externalist theory where behavior helps determine actual internal state. I did drama in high school and appeared in a one-act play in college, and I did find that having sort of easy banter with my castmates before going on stage helped settle the nerves a bit and remind me that I was among friends, that it was a safe place, and just kind of helped turn that nervous energy into something that I could actually use. And then he sees Ambrose, where we have essentially performative enmity. Sim points out that it takes two to argue. And Kvothe is just flat out, I don't care, he started it. Yeah, well, I'm not going to roll over like some puppy. And instead of doing a mature thing, no, granted, he is 15. But instead of doing the thing that makes sense looking at it from the outside of, how about you not poke him? He's just, little hippie dog. Right. Well, he doesn't have to roll over. He also doesn't have to seek him out. Like, as soon as Ambrose walks in there, Quoth locks in on him. Instead of just saying, eh, I'm going to ignore him, he's just staring at him. Also, Ambrose's presence makes Quoth decide then and there to do the inadvisable thing. He had been coming around. He's like, okay, you know what? Maybe this is a dumb idea. Maybe being overambitious is not the best way to gamble away my money or to get what I want. Oh, oh, that person's here. I'm going to go ahead and cut my nose off now to spite my face. And Ambrose is rich enough. He doesn't need to live rent-free in Quoth's head. (laughs) There is one thing, though. He goes ahead and says, Ambrose plays liar? And he gets it in his head that he has to compete with Ambrose on yet another thing. But he makes up his mind that he did not want anything to do with this place if Ambrose was a member of the group. I can kind of understand and sympathize with this visceral reaction. In my example, I did not go out of my way to make somebody do things that would otherwise affect my life negatively. And it wasn't really an enemy thing. 
it was more of a specific person that I knew at school made me turn into this bastion of waffle goodness and not in a good way. <laughs> there was a person who took advantage of some of the systems and would have potentially gotten the school in trouble with accreditation boards and some other aspects of their behavior, which quite honestly did not affect me personally, wound up making me angry. And I know that for my own self, I would never be able to be happy working at a place that this particular person was working at. And I have a low opinion of anyone that would hire and then keep this person on staff. That being said, I am not going and seeking this person out. I am ignoring them. I am blocking anything that I see of them on any Facebook groups and I have not added them onto LinkedIn or done anything that would tie me to them. Whereas Quoth is literally every time he sees Ambrose, just line of sight locked in, I am going to tie yet another string between the two of us so that we are inextricably linked. Yeah, he keeps making this about the two of them and their, quote, enmity, which at this point seems relatively one-sided. Because Quoth has made himself the antagonist in Ambrose's story. And he seems to delight in it, too. Now, I'd rather personally believe that the best revenge is living well. A, they really don't care about you. You are probably not their antagonist. Or if you are, you're probably a minor antagonist, a little mini-boss that no one gives a crap about. Especially not that person. And B, it means that you live well. It means that you're happier. I'd rather be happier. The way that that kind of spite can sometimes poison otherwise good situations, and it turns the whole thing into just a pointless feud. On top of that, you can ruin other relationships. Let's say somebody who doesn't have that antagonistic feeling towards this person could take them or leave them finds out that you are that obsessed over making that person just miserable or eat their words or into a fool or any number of negative things. And then you break the relationship with the person that was otherwise Switzerland. Oftentimes it's not worth it. Absolutely. Quoth has turned this into a one-sided feud and is determined to turn it into a two-sided feud. Quoth is just sitting there staring daggers at him, giving him the stink eye the entire time. Granted, he eventually says, and then I realized this all did not matter. Except it does because it made him make a decision that could be incredibly stupid. It wasn't. Sheer dumb luck. But that's the fallacy of trying to make outcome-based decisions. You're retroactively deciding that you made a good decision because the outcome happened to go your way, but not in a way that's reproducible. We go along, we get some examples of other people who have either already earned their talent pipes or are trying for them. This is the talent show portion of the chapter. <laughs> 
One thing I would like to point out, and this is to any writers that are out there, because we are so, so, so used to men being the default, we tend to use descriptors for them, adjectives for them, that don't get afforded to women. Case in point, we have a male musician. Said musician gets called musician because we assume he's male. And then we wind up with a lady singer who is always referred to as the woman because that is the only descriptor we can give them so that you remember that they are a woman. Ah! <laughs> Honestly, there aren't thousands upon thousands of descriptors for men and then one for women. I get where you're coming from here because I think what's turning you off is the fact that it's very reductive and it turns people into tropes. And instead of even referring to people by their hair color or their eye color or what have you, it's referring to them by their genitals or your assumption of their genitals. And it more often happens to women. Find a way to use an adjective about a woman rather than just referring to them as a woman if they have other qualities. That's all. All right. And then we also get here in this section our first introduction to Count Threp, who I kind of like to think of as the Weird Al Yankovic of the Aeolian. <laughs> he may not necessarily be the absolute best musician, but he's talented enough, and more importantly, he's witty enough, that everybody loves him. What's even better is that he doesn't seem to care whether or not he earns his pipes. He just wants to perform, and he wants to have fun, and this affords him a way to do that. In addition to being Weird Al, he's the person who hangs out at the bar on karaoke nights and just looks to sing a song and have some fun. Not necessarily good at it. But he enjoys it. Which is also a type of performance. He's having fun performing. I'm sure he'd be thrilled if he ever did get his talent pipes, but I'm pretty sure he's also self-aware enough to realize he never will. And he's also confident enough in who he is that he doesn't need to define himself by that. We go along, Quoth is about to go on stage. We get another mention of how Ambrose was bothering him. Their eyes lock, and then Careless Whisper plays. <laughs> I mean, seriously, this is the great romance of the ages right here. I mean, if this was a romantic comedy, this would be a classic case of first they hate each other, and then they hate each other so much that they love each other. Ten things I hate about Ambrose. Ten things I hate about Ambrose. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. You're good. <laughs> <laughs> So we get a description earlier that the Lay of Circevian is like a 15-minute song. 15 minutes is a long time. It's a long time to play any song because that means you can't take a break to get water. You can't stretch out your hands. There's a reason why they only play Freebird at the end of the concert. <laughs> we get our first four lines setting the stage, and then all of the internals 
of how Kvothe was feeling playing this song. He's still boastful, but honestly, his greatest romance in this entire book is between him and his lute. The lute is the one person or thing that he would do anything for. And in this case, it's not performative. This is literal. He, he loves that rundown lute. It's what he could afford, and he's going to take care of it as well as he can. He has more words of description for the dilapidated lute than he does for just about anyone else in this entire story. Kind of reminds me of Willie Nelson's beat-up guitar trigger, which is this instrument that if you were to put it in a store, you would be lucky to get 10 bucks for it. I don't know about that. It depends on if people know what guitar that is. It has been repaired and repaired and repaired and repaired and repaired since 1960-something. There is almost nothing holding the top together. There are holes all over the place where normally there shouldn't be holes. From Willie Nelson strumming it, parts of the guitar have been chipped off. And there's only one luthier that can ever, ever work on it. And Willie Nelson better hope that his luthier outlives him. And it's that element of love that I think makes those great instruments great. They're clearly a companion for their players. There is certainly also a little bit of romanticism to it that you wouldn't have with necessarily a brand new, fresh out of the box guitar. And I think everyone wants to have an instrument that they will have and love for that long. We learn just a little bit about Sir Sabian and I kinda wish that we could have the full lyrics to this song because he is described as the greatest of the Amir. Clearly, there is more legend and documentation and what have you in the world regarding the Amir than anything we ever get told to us because we're relying on Quoth, who finds the contents of his pockets much more fascinating to tell us anything relevant about the Amir, the Chandrian, Scarpy, anything. We are relying on this person who has no interest in telling us the things that are interesting and much more interest in telling us I had three copper jots and two pennies. Yeah, and we don't even really get what the deal is with Sir Savian and Eluine. Like, what do they love about each other? All we know is just, yeah, they're kind of tragic lovers. I would like the actual lyrics to this song. That's all I'm saying. Hell, barring that, just a quick rundown of what the broad strokes of this legend are that seem to be burned into everyone's collective unconscious. I mean, is this like a Tristam and Isolde scenario? Or is this Eloise and Abelard? What is it? We just want to know. <laughs> we get a tiny taste. Six lines. The ladies part. Quoth is a lucky bastard. <laughs> he strikes the right chord, remembers to double the refrain, all that, and sits clenching his entire body going, please let this work, please let this work, please let this work, please let this work. Someone take the hint. 
and then someone does. And it almost all falls apart because he's so curious to know who has saved his dumb ass. Yeah, he's more caught up in who saved him from the boiling oil that he jumped into than he is actually on getting out of said boiling oil. <laughs> and then he realizes he's about to be burned and then goes back to what he's supposed to be doing. I do love, though, that there is a callback to one of my favorite sections of the entire series. The point at which Quoth uses his music for meditation, uses his music to help him cope with the worst tragedy anyone could ever face in their young life. It's such a beautiful section to me. Episode 8 covers that, and I will always think of that as one of our best, one of my favorites. Being able to get lost in his music and find himself within it. So there's something that's kind of interesting about this. What's the name of the song that he describes? It's not so much a song as it is atmosphere. Wind turning a leaf on a lute with six strings. That right there. That turning leaf is not so different from the spinning leaf that he discovers while he's studying with Aden, which is sort of this way of being in the moment where you stop focusing on what you feel like you should do and focus on what you are doing, of being very much in the present, which allows for this sort of improvisational approach that allows him to adapt and see things as they are, not as he wants them to be. Both of us play guitar. I also play ukulele. It is definitely possible to play similar notes on other strings. You might not have the same range, and depending on what string was cut, you might not be able to cover that note at all, and you might have a bear of a time trying. Because to reproduce an A on your low E string on your guitar, you have to put your finger on the fifth fret. Unless his hands are superhumanly huge, and mind you, he's playing fretless, it is nearly impossible to reach to where you can actually play that note and chord properly with the correct notes. Not completely impossible, just improbable, I guess, is the better way to go about it. It's difficult. Both lute has seven strings. Depending on the range of each string and how it is tuned, it may be harder, it may be easier, but it's definitely not easy. And what he's able to do here is a testament to how well he knows the theory of his instrument. He understands how each sound is made at an intimate level so that he's able to quickly adapt on the fly when one of his strings mysteriously breaks because he's already dealt with something like this. And he knows how to make the notes that he wants to make even with the constraints that he's newly found himself under. The way that this is all described, wherein the music unravels, I can see the music being kind of like a braid, being threads all woven together. And I can see it all coming back and crashing. And I can also see him desperately trying to hold that. 
not just because this performance represents a future for him, but because this performance has wormed its way into his soul and it's an expression of himself. And if he lets it all go, the hangover from it all just whipping back would be devastating. And what's really interesting to me is that this is an instance where for the first time in this chapter, he's not thinking about this in terms of his talent pipes that are on the line. He's not thinking about this in terms of his debts. He's not thinking about it in anything other than the terms of what it means to him in this moment to play this particular song. This is a song that he associates heavily with his mother and father. It's a foundational element to who he is, and there's something very pure in it. In this one instant where he stops thinking about all the rest of the bullshit. And I think it's what makes it work. When it all starts coming back and waking him out of this music dream, he is able to say what he did to keep it whole was not perfect. And there is something that you say a lot. Perfect is the enemy of the good. If you're trying so desperately to make everything perfect, any mild imperfection, making one slight mistake, can ruin the entire experience for you. Whereas if you think about it as, this is good, but maybe not perfect, and that's okay. If you exceed your expectations on good, yay! And if something is still good but not perfect, it won't be so detrimental to your sense of self, to everything you hold dear. If you can let go of that need to be perfect and accept what is good, anything better than good will be great. And live music in particular is all about those little imperfections that spring about organically. The best shows are the ones where something unexpected happens, where something doesn't go according to plan, where a wrench is thrown into the works and the artists adapt and respond to it and use that to build it into something even better. And you remember that show and it sticks in your mind as something that could only happen that one time and you can't bottle that lightning. And this is, I think, what happens here. Quoth manages to ride that lightning, that moment where something unexpected happened and was able to respond and improvise and roll forward instead of trying to fix what broke. Okay, so last time, I promise, I really promise, this is the last time this chapter I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do this. <laughs> when Quoth's Aloine sings again, she was not a person or a voice. She was just a part of the song that was burning out of me. If there was any better description of how Quoth views Denna in his story, I have yet to find it. Quoth views everyone as a narrative cog in his story. Accurate, but most particularly Denna. Denna gets so much short shrift. And because of this, so many people hate her. I think that's unfair. If you want to hate someone, hate Quoth. <laughs> ah, 
I know you love this series in spite of Quoth instead of because of Quoth. Yep. <laughs> I do like the description here of when Quoth looks up after the music is done, after the last of the sustain fades away. And he says, it was like breaking the surface of water for air. He has been so caught in the current of his music that to leave it is jarring. Necessary, but jarring. That response that he has of open weeping is really his first display of genuine vulnerability since he got to the university. And it's pure and honest. And while it does serve the performance, it also is just this deeply immediate gut-level reaction that conveys a truth about himself. He drops the performance. It could be easily seen as something cynical to cry at the end of your own performance. But at that point where all of the emotion just drains out of you, physically, through your eyes, through your snot, what have you, it's visceral and you can tell the difference between someone who's putting on a show and someone who is feeling that genuine emotion. I did not even cry for the boy who had learned to play a lute with six strings in the forest years ago. I went through my beyond fair share of trauma as a kid and as a teenager. It is easy to see how you think you would mourn for the person you used to be, especially when things are better. Now, his trauma is fresh. It's within five years. It's probably more likely within three years. We kind of forget that, knowing that it's been hundreds of pages at this point, and so much has happened. But he cries for the love that he sees in this song, at cruel fate and man's folly. There's that word again, folly. The song allows him to feel grief in a safe way because he's not confronting his own grief, but he is experiencing that emotion. Yeah, the bit there at the end where he's just still very much in the moment and he's processing these emotions organically and not performatively is a marked contrast to everything that he's done up until this point. And I think that's part of what makes the overall performance so powerful and why this section really resonates with a lot of people. It's kind of appropriate that the day on which he is doing this performance is morning. Now, if you are only listening to the book, you could get the homophone of morning as in the time of day, but it's actually morning as in grieving. He knows he's still on display. He knows he has to gather up the shreds of his performance. He has to cocoon himself back in that shell that he always keeps, that he shows everyone else. A little bit of emotion is okay. Breaking down in front of an audience, not so much. We get our little couple paragraph chapter. Pat has a really good sense of how to be poetic in a lot of his writing. 
he sprinkles it in, but this whole section, this whole chapter, music sounds different to the one who plays it. He talks about how the ending of the song is fading from Quoth's memory. He talks about how hindsight lets in the doubt. What if it hadn't been as whole as it seemed? What if the way that Quoth is reacting seems more like a reaction of a broken child than of somebody who just poured their soul out in their music? He waits and he hears the silence pouring out of his audience. That is such an interesting visual experience for me. Yeah, you can feel the audience just processing what they've witnessed, letting it all just sink in. But that silence pouring off of them, there's something about it. They held themselves tense and quiet and tight, as if the song had burned them worse than flame. There's a lot of imagery around flame to do with Quoth, his red hair, what the Adem have named him. He talks about his audience as if individual people have experienced wounds and are clutching their pain to themselves as if it were a precious thing. Eventually, sobs are released, tears, whispers. They're coming out of a trance. Individuals in the audience come back alive, come back from that brink that the music has taken them to, come back from their reverie. And then he hears the applause, a roar like leaping flame, like thunder after lightning. The flame, the thunder, and the broken tree. All right. I think with that, it's time for us to talk about our Fernimos of the week. So I've chosen as my Fernimos, Stanchion. For one thing, he appreciates excellence. But at the same time, he encourages everyone, even if they are merely very good, or even just okay. He lets them have their chance, and he encourages them to keep trying. He doesn't say you can never try for your pipes again. He never says, sorry, you're out. It's keep going keep performing, keep practicing, keep growing. So I thought that was pretty cool. He also provides caution against hubris. So even though Quoth was thinking his I don't need luck thing, his gambit is, as we've discussed, very risky and doesn't actually leave a whole lot to just his own skills. Stanchion recognizes this and tries to encourage him to maybe pick something that will let him focus more on just the things under his control. But he doesn't tell him directly what to do, I think because he recognizes that Quoth is a proud character. He's not going to just listen to someone telling him what to do. He might listen to someone questioning him. He might think about it, and ultimately we know Quoth will think about it and then just do it anyway. <laughs> but we know that if it was just presented as do this thing, Quoth would have just flat out rejected it. And I gotta say, I think that's human nature, for a lot of us at least. I know that I am more likely to rebel against someone telling me what to do, especially if I was inclined to do the opposite in the first place. It's like, fine, 
you don't want me to do this, I'm doing it anyway. And it's kind of petulant. Doesn't stop me from doing it. Recognition of the fact that sometimes this is a dumb decision doesn't save me from myself, just makes me double down. And I think that in this way, Kvothe is very relatable. The last thing is when Kvothe says, isn't this the Aeolian? I heard that this is where pride pays silver and plays golden, which is this really arrogant and kind of condescending remark here. I don't think it's that arrogant or condescending. I think it's naive. And Stanchion, instead of trying to shoot him down, just says, I hope you're as good as you think you are. (laughs) There's a couple ways that this could be taken. You could take it at face value, which is kind of how I took it. Or I guess you could take it as Stanchion going, yeah, sure, whatever, kid. But he flips it around and just lets it all go. He responds without trying to shoot Kvothe down. He just says, hey, I hope your skills are able to pay off the check that your words are trying to write. So I thought that was just a clever way to respond without really rising to the bait or escalating. He simply lets Kvothe be Kvothe and accepts him as he is, and I think that's probably the wisest way to approach someone like that. So yes, that's my Phronimos. I think it's a very good Phronimos. Thank you. And I believe it's your turn for interesting fact of the week. So let's take to heart the lessons of Master Elodin. Interest me. Okay, little preface. I did not engineer this so that this episode, this topic, that the Aeolian would appear on one of my weeks for the interesting fact. But I am very happy that it wound up being my week because I have been wanting to talk about this particular thing for more than a month, probably more than two months. Time has no meaning any longer. And I think I actually have had this information up on my phone. I want to say since probably February and it is the middle of May when we are recording this. I really hope you find it interesting, because I do. I wanted to know more about the origins of the word Aeolian. And it turns out that the word Aeolian, spelled A-E-O-L-I-N, comes from the name of the Greek god and keeper of the winds, Aeolus. Now, the Aeolian in the book is E-O-L-I-A-N. We're going to call it the same thing. It means of or caused by the wind, or wind-blown. It's obvious why Patrick Rothfuss chose this for the name of the bar. I still like knowing a little bit more. So in geology, the word Aeolian pertains to sand or rock material carried by or arranged by the wind. So in arid climates, there is a term, the Aeolian process, which speaks to the wind's ability to shape the surface of the earth. There's talk about Ari being a shaper. So while I find all of that interesting, I also found something that I consider a bit more fascinating while looking up the word's origins. There is an instrument known as the Aeolian harp or wind harp. As the name implies, this stringed instrument is played by the wind. Not only is the Aeolian harp the only stringed instrument that is played solely by the wind, but it is also the only stringed instrument that plays solely harmonic frequencies. There are two main types of Aeolian harps. The traditional instrument consists of a wooden box 
with a sounding board and strings stretched lengthwise across two bridges. These are typically placed in a slightly open window where the wind can blow across the strings and make sounds. There are also metal framed aeolian harps that do not have soundboards. These produce a much different sound to that of their wooden counterparts. Unlike other instruments that are played with the wind, think wind chimes, aeolian harps do not have a percussive element to them. Rather, crescendos and decrescendos of harmonic frequencies are played in the rhythm of the winds. Ooh, that's really cool. Many of the metal-framed aeolian harps look more like sculptures than like traditional instruments. And there are quite a few permanent installations of wind harps around the world, including some gigantic ones in Italy, Germany, and the U.S., and more. Some are even located at science education centers to help teach the public about the physics of music and wind. Oh, that's awesome. Okay, you've interested me. No raspberries for you today. Right, not until we get that shipment of Pop-Tarts. <laughs> All right, so now it's time for us to share our seven words. This week I have seven words from the book, and I'm going to cheat a little bit this time. Oh, you are? Yeah, I have an exchange of two seven-word sentences. Oh. The first is from Quoth saying... I'm about to die of terminal curiosity. And Willem's response, if anyone could, it would be you. <laughs> but it's just a perfect little bit of screwball dialogue between two people who obviously care about each other, but also enjoy sniping a little bit. This is going to make... <laughs> making my Instagram post for this week a little more difficult. Are there any seven word sentences that you would otherwise choose so that I have something a little easier or am I stuck? You're stuck because I think this is just so perfect. But this was just too much fun. All right. And so I believe you have seven words from life. I do. Worry is a terrible misuse of imagination. Catastrophizing is something that happens a lot with people that have an anxiety disorder. Looking at a situation and always choosing the most negative path. Assuming that if somebody doesn't text you back immediately, that that means they hate you. Assuming that if you don't get the thing that you want right now, your whole world will fall apart. Going down these dark rabbit holes is common. Rumination is common. These things that are worry allow our brains to fixate on the what if. And that what if turning dark is our imaginations filling in these gaps. But what if we imagine the best case scenario instead? Use your imagination to think of the possibilities the good possibilities, the outcomes that you want to have happen. If you look at the section of the book, there is a sentence that says, I took the time to fret uselessly about things I had no control over. Worry is fretting uselessly about things you have no control over. But we as a species focus so much on the negative 
Sometimes we can think that we are fated to have the bad outcome or that a good outcome just is staving off the bad outcome, that the rug is going to be pulled out from underneath us. That worry builds up and festers and it can cause physical ailments. It can cause your body to be full of tension all the time. It can prevent you from doing things that would be otherwise fun and from seeing the possibilities that are good. It has a way of poisoning even positive experiences that are unmitigated successes. And more often poisons mediocre experiences that would otherwise be unremarkable. I think that that's a good place to wrap that one up. That's a good set. And at this time, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thank you, audience, for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week on Tales from the Waystone as we discuss chapters 56 and 57 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of narrative causality. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can get access to our show notes, custom digital posters, exclusive Patreon-only bonus pods, and other exciting items. One of those items includes first access to a sticker that I am designing and hoping to get printed up that you can see the sketch at least right now on our Instagram page. Way back in episode four, we talked about our summer reading programs as children. And I talked about how my library gave me broccoli stickers. And thanks to one of our followers on Instagram, combined with one of our followers on Twitter, we came up with both the broccolis, broccoli stickers, which I am currently in the process of taking into Illustrator and drawing so that I can get them printed as stickers. What we'll probably wind up doing is selling them at cost. This isn't something I want to make a huge profit on. This is more... I want to make sure that we aren't totally losing it on trying to make sure that we can ship them out and whatnot. But we'll probably find a way to sell them soon. And the first people to find out about how we're doing this will be the people that follow us on Patreon. I'm pretty sure that I'm going to put this on a public post, but that's the way that you'll find out about it. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses one more day above the roses. Airplane. Airplane lets me drink the coffee. Airplane. Is an excuse for me to drink the coffee. Airplane. Let's me drink the coffee. You're not very imaginative. Drinks the coffee.
Look, I have one thing on my mind right now, and it's drinks the coffee. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Ah, la, 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 la.